All right, good morning, everybody. Hey, somebody's awake. That's good. Let me move this out of the way. Good morning, good morning. We are going to be in Revelation chapter 2 again this morning, <clears throat> and we are going to be looking at the, th- uh, the third of seven churches that Jesus addresses in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And we're going to talk about being tested um, and true today in our spiritual walk. But before we begin, let me pray for us just briefly one more time. Father God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for my brothers and sisters here, Lord. I thank you for the opportunity to gather to worship you, Lord, to just experience your presence, Lord God. I thank you that we serve the only living God, and the fruit of your presence is in our life, Father. Um, I know they call it blind faith, but Father, our faith is not blind, Lord, and I thank you for that. I thank you that you show yourself true over and over again. And so, Father, this morning, I pray that as I speak, that you would just move me out of the way, Father. You would let the flesh fail. And Holy Spirit, that you would speak whatever it is you have for your church. And so we glorify you and submit to you in all things, Lord. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. So, our first week, we looked at the church of Ephesus, and we talked about God's command for us to return to our first love. Last time we were together, we looked at the church of Smyrna. Wait, is that right? Smyrna? Yes, I think so. And uh, we talked about what does it look like to be faithful just in everyday situations, just to know that God is always with us, and rather it's at work or at home, rather it's in the church or out of the church, that he wants us to be faithful. And this morning, we're going to be looking at uh, the Word of God, And we're going to be looking at Jesus' desire and expectation for us to walk in a holy manner before him according to his word. So before we we get into Revelation, I want to open up with a passage from Psalms. One of my favorite Psalms. Wrong tassel. I've got three. There it is. Right tassel. Uh, Psalm 119 is basically, it's the longest Psalm in in the book. Um, I don't know how many verses. It's a lot. And basically, the whole psalm is people talking about the joy they have in coming to know God by meditating and walking in his word, in his law, in his ways. And so we're going to read the first 16 verses, just as kind of a primer for us this morning. And so in Psalm 119, starting in verse 1, and it'll be on the board, it says, Blessed are the undefiled in the way, who walk in the law of the Lord, Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. They also do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. You have commanded us to keep your precepts diligently. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. Then I would not be ashamed when I look into all your commandments. I will praise you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. I will keep your statutes. Oh, do not forsake me utterly. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips, I have declared all the judgments of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. 
I will not forget your word. Now that, that heart, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I will not for, uh, forget your word. That's really the heart of the whole Psalm 119. In a lot of ways, it's the heart of all of Christ's commandments towards us. It's the heart of being able to follow him obediently and to know him. And so in chapter 2, we're going to read about the church at Pergamos and what God has against them there. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 12. It says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give to him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Amen. Now, some of y'all might be sitting there going, what the heck did we just read? Um, And that's okay, because we're going to go through this this morning, and we're going to talk about three things, mostly. We're going to talk about how is Jesus depicting himself in this letter, and why is it important for us to understand? What is the doctrine of Balaam and, and the Nicolaitans? And when he says repent, what does it look like in our life to turn away from these things and to receive that promise that Jesus has given us? So the first thing I want to look at here in verse 1 is look at how it describes Jesus. These things says, he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now that's kind of an interesting way for Jesus to depict himself, right? But you know, the Bible refers to this in several occasions as Jesus having a two-edged sword, as his word uh, coming forth like a two-edged sword. And there's a reason for that. I want to read to you, I'm just going to read through these. Hebrews 4, 12 through 13. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner, a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things... Yes, your heart, your mind, your motives, your decisions, all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give accounts. Likewise, in Revelation 19, 15, when when it's depicting Jesus coming back, the second coming of Christ, and he's coming back with the saints and he strikes the nations of his enemies, says, now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule, rule them with a rod of iron. 
He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. So what is he saying here? Jesus is coming to this church and he's saying, I am the one coming with a sharp two-edged sword. I am the one that if you do not repent, I'm going to fight against you with the word of my mouth. Now, when you understand that in Revelation, when he speaks in the sharp two-edged sword, when he speaks against the nations and utterly destroys them, that's a pretty terrifying thing for Jesus to come and say. If Jesus knocked on my door and was like, yo, bro, if you don't stop your ways, I'm going to come fight against you with my sword, I'd be like, my bad. Okay, <laughs> we don't, I don't even know what you're talking about, but I'm just, I for, just forgive me my whole life. Let me just start over. Okay, that's a, that's a terrifying thing to understand that Jesus, you know, we have such a, you know, a buddy Jesus outlook on who he is. I don't know if y'all have seen that statue. Jesus with a little heart and he's all happy. He's all pointing. Uh, it's called the buddy Jesus. And that's a lot of times, that's the way we hear about Jesus, that he was meek, that he loved people, that he healed them. And those things were all true. But Jesus is a good and righteous judge. And when he comes back, he is going to judge the nations. He has a sharp two-edged sword that is going to cut between soul and spirit, bone and marrow. He's going to separate sheep from goats, the righteous from the unrighteous. And he is going to give eternal life and eternal punishment. That is what he has declared of himself that he will do. And some people might say to me, well, you know, Darren, Jesus, Jesus said he came into the world to save, not to condemn. Well, that's true. The first time he came, he came to deliver the message of grace, of salvation, of reconciliation. However, he himself says in John chapter 12, verse 47 and 48, I want you to hear, these are Jesus' words. If anyone hears my words, if you read the scriptures and you don't believe them, you hear his commands, you don't believe them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has this which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. Very interesting. Jesus says, as he was here on earth in his ministry, I have no need to, to come and try to judge between you and try to make things happen. I have come to declare the goodness of God. I have come to say, I and the Father are one. Anyone who sees me and believes me will have everlasting life. If you love me, keep my commandments. And those who do will receive that. And those who do not, the words and the testimonies that have already been spoken will be judgment against you. And so Jesus appears to this church and he's painting himself in the picture as one who sees things clearly, who judges rightly. He says, I see your heart. I see the intent of, of, of your motives and what you're doing. Nothing is laid bare. That's why in every letter to the church, he starts the same way. I know your works. Next church, I know your works. I know your works. I know your works. And what he's saying is, I understand your life. I understand the things you're doing. I see clearly the struggles you're going th through, the, the way you're trying to serve, not trying to serve. All of these things are laid bare before God. Nothing is hidden from his sight. You 
He says, I know your works, verse 13, and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And he says, and you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was a faithful martyr who was killed among you, which means he, he died for his faith, where Satan dwells. And yet, in verse 14, he says, but I have a few things against you. Because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam and taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. Repent or else I will come to you quickly and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth." You know, I used to work private security. Um, I'm a level three commissioned officer by the, by the DPS. And one of the things that you learn in security is levels of force, appropriate force, right? So if um, Denise came to beat me up and I pulled out a club and hit her, that's not appropriate force, okay? <laughs> um, you have to match force with force. Now, the, the very first level of appropriate force or as a deterrent, for anything to happen. Does anybody know what it is? I just want to guess. Your voice? Almost. That's very close. Your presence. Your presence. Just having people standing around an event with shirts that say security on them. These dudes could have like spinal in in injuries and just be like, they could just be standing there with some hidden you know, thing under the pants. You don't know. Okay? You don't know what they know. You don't know if they can handle themselves. It doesn't matter. Okay? The fact that there are people there, they got shirts on, they say security, that deters most issues. Most issues. And the first level of deterrence, really the first level of threat, is just their presence. And in some ways, that's what Jesus is saying here. He's reminding them that I stand before you and I see all things. And in every letter, he who has an ear, let him hear He's saying to us to dis that he discerns our motives, he discerns our ways, and we should also. And if we have any fear of God, that should not only deter us off of a wrong path, it should help us get back on the right one. He says, but if, if not, I will come and fight against you. I will come against, fight against these people with the word of my mouth. So let's ask this question real quick. I want to explain to you, what is the doctrine of Balaam and what is the doctrine of the, the Nicolaitans? So Balaam is this really crazy dude. This tripped me out last night. I was going back and just testing my understanding of, of Balaam and the story there. So Balaam is this prophet in the middle of nowhere in the Old Testament. God has his own people. They're called Israel, the Hebrew, the Hebrew people. And he's guiding them to the promised land. And along the way, there's some random dude out in some random nation, not attached to his people at all, who speaks to God. And it's really interesting. One of the kings sees the Israelites come out and he wants to destroy them because he's afraid of, of they're going to take my kingdom, they're going to take our resources. And so he says, hey, go get a diviner's fee. A diviner, that's sorcery. That's witchcraft, right? That's like palm readers and so on and so forth. Go get a diviner's fee. Go get this dude Balaam because whoever he blesses is blessed and whoever he's cursed is cursed. And so he tries to buy he tries to buy Balaam to come and curse God's people. And it's very interesting 
Um, I never caught this until last night, actually, that he goes and he seeks the Lord several times and God speaks to this random dude in the middle of nowhere and tells him, only speak what I speak and you will not, ble- you will not curse these people because they're my people and they're blessed. And yet somewhere along the way, he gets up in the morning and he gets on a donkey and it seems to be that he's going to go speak a curse against them anyways. And one of the craziest, well, there's a lot of crazy things in the Bible, but one of the craziest things in the Bible is this donkey sees an angel of the Lord who's about to kill Balaam. And so he moves off the road and then he sees him again. And so he moves into this narrow road. And then finally the angel standing right in front of him and he crushes Balaam's leg against the wall. So he won't have to go any further. And Balaam's beating the donkey. And finally the donkey just falls. And he's like, man, you're stupid donkey. What are you doing? I swear, this is in the Bible. Go, go read it, okay? Uh, what is this? Uh, number, is it number? No. Uh, is it numbers? Numbers 25? I think so. Anyways, Google it. Um, and it says that God loosens the tongue of this donkey and allows this donkey to speak. And the donkey's like, dude, haven't I always been a good donkey? Why are you beating me up, man? Like, all these years, I've never betrayed you. I'm trying to help you. And then God opens Balaam's eyes, and he sees the angel of the Lord ready to kill him. Why? Because he had simply got on a path that was walking contradictory to God's word. That's what he was doing. And the donkey. You know what the other word for donkey is? Yeah. He was wiser than that prophet, because that prophet was not willing to walk according to the ways of the Lord. Also interesting, just for, for you Bible, Bible buffs, um, it says that the next time he goes to seek the Lord, it says he does not go out to commit sorcery as in the other times. Very interesting. So he was seeking the Lord through sorcery, and for some reason God was answering him, but that specific time when he did not use sorcery, it says the spirit of the Lord fell upon him and he said, I who my eyes have now been opened and the way he speaks is completely different than any of the other times. It's very interesting. So just a side note for some of y'all. But <laughs> what is my point here? The New Testament says that somewhere after this time, since Balaam couldn't curse God's people because he was gonna get paid a lot of money by this king, At some point after that, he taught the king that if he would put a stumbling block before God's people, if he would cause them to sin by living sexually immoral lives, if he could convince them to worship idols, that he knew that God's wrath would be poured out upon these people. And that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. And so he's saying, look, church, I see you and I see that you have faith. I see that you've held to my name. I see that you've hung on to my faith, that you have not denied me even though there's been persecution, but I have this against you that you're allowing people in your midst who are willing to sell out my will, my word, my way for their own selfish gain. Their own selfish gain. And I wanna just tell you something. A lot of times we can get caught in a trap of compromising on the will and the ways of God because we think it'll benefit us somehow. That doesn't always mean money. That doesn't always mean money. We, we were praying, um, we've been praying for people with alcohol problems. We've, we've prayed before for people who have 
who have gone off on destructive paths because they thought that somehow that they, would, they could benefit themselves in a way outside of God's blessing. And we saw the same thing happen in the garden, and it didn't end well, right? Adam and Eve ate the fruit. Wasn't a good idea, right? And in fact, 1 Timothy 6 3 through 5, it talks about people who know the word of God, people who are among the body, but instead of submitting to the word of God, instead of simply receiving the word of God, they're contentious. They debate everything. They despise authority. And they, they try to twist their faith for their own personal gain because their eyes are on themselves and not the Lord. So I want to read this one section in 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 5. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, for which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds, destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such, withdraw yourself. From such, withdraw yourself. Now that's very important. Not all translations have that last little part, from such, withdraw yourself. The New King James Version does. If you look at the Amplified Version in the brackets, it adds that, but not all, for some translations skip out on that. But it seems very important because here, that is what Jesus is, is coming against this church for. You have faith, you've held to my name, but, but you are allowing those among you who are selling out my ways, selling out the purity of the church for their own gain. You are selling out these people who are the Nicolaitans. These are people who said, oh yes, Jesus, oh yes, the word of God, but you can still live sexually, sexual immoral. You can still worship other idols. You can still do these other things that the Bible clearly calls sinful. And not just, oh, it's bad, you can't do it, but God knows that these are destructive things that hurt us, that hurt other people. And they're mingling that. They're not being true to the word of God. And he says, if you do not change this, if you do not repent, I'm going to come and fight against them, these people, with the word of my mouth. So I want to ask you this, based on what we're talking about so far, uh, so far, what does it look like to repent? What's the issue, and what does it look like to repent from it? Anybody? Sin. <laughs> Sin. Stop. Stop it. Well, that's true. Specifically, though, turn away. Turn away from what? Sorry? Yeah, what's the issue here, and what would it look like to repent? When he says repent, he doesn't explain the repentance, so we, we're supposed to understand what he's saying here. So what does is, what is Jesus have an issue with in this church? Tolerating, tolerating false doctrines, tolerating false practices, Right? Or let's just say even being involved. Yes, tolerating for one. In fact, trying to promote it for two. Even being involved in things 
that are contrary to God's word. Just something so simple as Balaam. God said to do one thing, and he just said, no, I'm going to go do this. And God was going to kill him. God was going to kill him. Boom. We were just talking about the way um, we used to live and the way we see some people live. My mom, is, she's known the Lord her whole life, um, but she was not always a faithful follower of God and his word. He really, she didn't really know how. She was, she was talking to me about, like, man, some of the ways I used to live, some of the things I used to justify in my own life, I now look back on and I'm like, man, I was dumb. Like, oh my gosh, how, how, did, I, how did I justify those things? And she was saying, now, and I see other people doing it, younger people especially, and my heart mourns for them, and they, and they just don't get it. And I'm like, yeah, I, I totally understand that. I live the same way. I said, you know, that's why it's so important to know the Word of God. It's so important to know the Word of God. I got saved when I was four years old, five years old, something like that. I've known the Lord my entire life. I can't remember not knowing God. And yet it was not until I was 18, 19 years old Y'all know the story, looking at prison time, blah, 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 that I suddenly realized there was some issues with my life that needed to change. And I began to read the word of God. And the word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of our hearts. And God's word began to change the way I think. God's word began to give me God's outlook. He began to show me where I was, where I was wrong where I was hurting myself, where I was hurting other people, where I was actually blaspheming God's name, and I had no idea. And it was the word of God that gave me a new heart, that stirred up his spirit, that has caused me to walk in his ways. And it's God's word that comes. When Jesus comes with a sharp two-edged sword and he discerns between things, he judges rightly. And we have to be, allow, we have to be able to allow God's word to judge our hearts personally. And then to judge our body communally, communally, you know, corporately. <laughs> my, my tongue is not working this morning. And we have to allow the word of God, the manifested will of God, to be our standard. And when we do that, man, everything gets put in order. And suddenly the blessing, the joy, the peace, right? The fullness of God comes into our life and changes things. But not only that, but we begin to live lives that honor God. And really, that's what everything comes down to. Balaam was not that worried about honoring God there for a second. He was worried about his big bank account he was about to get. And God had to rebuke him and put him back on the path to put a fear of God in his heart that put him in the right way. And this church at Pergamos needed the same thing. Acts chapter, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 5, 
Paul writes to him and says, you have a guy who's there and he's sleeping with his father's wife and you're rejoicing about how great you are. You just love him and everything's okay. He said, no, that dude needs to repent. That's a wicked thing. Not even the godless people do that. He needs to be put out of the church with the hopes that he'll repent, right? That his soul might be saved, it says. And so in the same way, the Lord is challenging us today to be students of his word, to come into his presence, right? To understand his, his will and what he teaches us. He do, does our life line up with that? Because the one thing here, that should be a, a little bit of a scary testimony is this, that, you know, I shared with, with Denise just recently in the Old Testament, it says, when a man's way pleased the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Well, the opposite of that is, in some ways we see here, when a man's ways oppose the Lord, God opposes them. And in fact, Jesus says, I will fight against you. I will fight against your way. I will fight against these things you're trying to produce. If you are not in line with my desires. Verse 16, repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Uh, sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat and I will give him a white stone and on the stone a new name written which no one knows except him who receives it. Last thing I want to touch on today is this white stone. That's kind of a weird promise. Like we're talking about, you know, overcoming the world and people dying for their faith and like, you know, being people of the word. And if you overcome all these things, I'm going to give you a rock. And you're like, what? <laughs> that seems a little different than some of the other promises, God. But when you look into Roman history, I want you to think about a gladiator, someone who becomes a slave to this, this warfare in the Colosseum, and at any point in time, they could die for this, right? And there was a tradition that if a, if a warrior fought and fought and fought, and if he overcame and overcome, and if he won, if he won the, um, the approval of the people and of the emperor, the emperor would give him a crown, a laurel crown of victory, and he would give him a white stone with his, the emperor's, name on it. And that white stone represented that he had bought his freedom and he could retire from that fight. Not only that, but his expenses, his food, because as long as he had that white stone, was now provided for at the emperor's expense. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, he who overcomes, I'm going to invite you into my kingdom. I'm going to give you some hidden manna to eat. I'm going to give you a white stone of victory with a new name that only those victors will see. And what is that? That's the promise of that eternal life where everything will be provided, where he says he will wipe away every tear. There will be no more crying, no more death, no more pain. And we will rule and serve with Christ in his kingdom forever. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this morning, Lord. We pray, Jesus, that you would just continue to bless us, Father, that you would continue to teach us your word, Father, that you would continue to teach us your way, Father God.
We thank you that you love us, Father, enough to come to us. You love us enough to, to rebuke us, to test our hearts, Father, that you want to give us the grace and the mercy to, to be righteous before you, Lord. You've given us an eternal significance, Father, to serve you in spirit and in truth. And I pray, Jesus, that you would just help us to be students of your word, to begin to read, to begin to allow the scriptures to test our lives and to conform to you more and more each day. So, Lord, we love you and we thank you for this time. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.